Well, good morning again. It's good to be with all of you this morning on a Sunday. It's always good to be here on Sunday morning. Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Romans, and we'll look at Romans chapter 11. And in this passage this morning, we'll see a a variety of things, but one of the things that we will see is where we left off last week in Romans 11, there was this picture of a remnant chosen by grace, those who God will not abandon, those he will not um, leave aside. And if, if that part of Romans 11 told us that there is always a remnant chosen by grace, the next part of the story points to the fact that in the end... Rejection is not the end of the story. That there is, there is hope, even in moments when the remnant seems small and we're confused about what God is doing. God is at work sovereignly through his great story, his great plan. And what this passage will do today is it'll tell us, where do we fit into all of this? Where do we fit into God's big story? What's our role? How do we interact with what is said here? How do we live out what God is calling us And so would you stand this morning for the reading of God's Word? We'll look at Romans 11, and we'll read verses 11 through 24 together. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. If the rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving it to us. Lord, even passages like this that at times may feel confusing, may raise questions. Lord, thank you that your word is true. Thank you that we can come to it to understand who you are to understand your story, to understand what you are doing. And I pray, Lord, that we would be able to do that this morning together, that we would see your truth, that it would would shape us, that it would form us. Lord, would you bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together this morning. I ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if we have any puzzlers here this morning, jigsaw puzzles. 
I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but if, if you're a puzzler, you m- might know this story. Uh, f- back in April of 2020, when everything was you know, going, going the way it was, you couldn't find a jigsaw puzzle. Um, in fact, these businesses, Ravensburger, other sort of big puzzle manufacturers, were in single days doing as much business as they normally do in the month of, month of December. They were selling out 300 plus percent their sales. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. One is people were at home, bored, and so they ordered a puzzle. They had time. But there's also something I think about puzzling, and I, I don't know if this is true. This is what people tell me. But there's something about a puzzle that gives you some structure, some completion. You put the pieces in, you look at the picture, and, and then you're done. And it sort of focuses your attention, and it gives you this sort of sense of, this is, this is something that I can, I can control. And in the midst of all the confusion, that was something that was, was probably good for, for those who did that. What about for us, though, and our confusion? Our confusion about the world. When we look at the world, we look at what's happening, and we're not going to get into all the details of whatever your opinions are, what the world is, is doing. But there, there's confusion. There's concern. What, what is the world going to look like? And, and, and really, what is God doing? It's the question that this text, text asks. You might not ask the question about Israel and why are they stumbling, but, but really what Paul is asking behind that question, what's up underneath that is, is what is God doing? In all his plans, in all his sovereignty, what is God doing? Uh, John Calvin, it's Reformation Sunday, so we've got to mention at least one reformer. John, John Calvin, when he looked at the, the world, described it this way, as, as a theater of God's glory. And he was talking partially about creation and just the, the glory of creation. But he also was, was pointing to the fact that there is sort of a, a, a story, a through line throughout Scripture that points to God's glory. That all that transpires on the earth is a theater, so to speak, in which God's glory is, is magnified. And in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of questions about what God is doing, that's what Paul directs us to, this idea that God is the one sovereignly working a story. And that'll be our, our, our through line through this text today, that God is, is working things sovereignly in a certain way. Now, you'll see in your outline there's sort of a, a progression there of what that, that looks like. Why would we talk about this in terms of story? Maybe you hear that and you get a little nervous. Why are we talking about a story? Isn't this historical truth? Yes, it is. This is one way of saying this is the history of salvation. And God unfolds it in a way with a beginning, a middle, and end that, that is, is also a story. It's, it has movement, a redemptive flow through all of it. That's what we'll see, see this morning. Now, if you noticed when we read this text, Jesus wasn't front and center, so to speak. His name didn't come up a lot. But really, what, what makes this all possible, what is driving this story is Jesus. Jesus is the one who makes everything that's possible here a reality. He's the one that does it. And so don't, don't miss that as we look here at details of Jews and Gentiles and what's happening. What Paul is saying, Jesus has come. The story has changed. This is the fulfillment of all that God has done. And here's how it's going to work out. And so let's begin this morning by, by trying to get this story straight. Look with me at verse 11. It begins with this, this question. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Who is he talking about? He's talking about Israel, ethnic Israel, the, the physical people of God. Did they stumble so as that they might fall? I just want to pause for a moment on that idea of, of stumbling. 
What, what did they stumble over? Well, they stumbled over, over Jesus. We read it in our uh, God's Word examines our heart this morning from Corinthians. If you look just a few verses back in Romans, Romans 9, verse 33, it says this. As it is written, I behold, I, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It's Jesus that, that these, these Jewish people, these Israelites, have, have stumbled over. Now, why, why would they do that? Well, it's this, the same reason we've seen throughout the book of, of Romans. They couldn't understand the reality that there was nothing that they were going to contribute to their salvation. That salvation was by, by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. All of those rich truths that we see in Romans, that is what they stumbled over. They stumbled over Jesus. He wasn't coming to give them political power or position, but was coming to offer himself and the righteousness imputed to them, that they might be righteous, not in their own way, but in his righteousness. That's, that's what they, they stumbled over. And note that Paul doesn't just sort of say they stumbled. It's not, stumbling here is not just sort of tripping up and making a mistake. He adds to that in verse 12, that this is a, a trespass. Both in 11 and 12, he talks about this stumbling as a, as a trespass, as, as a sin, as moving away from what will save us. They stumbled. And that's the, the context that, that we bring here. Jesus has come, and people stumble over him. Jesus has come, and people don't see him as who he is and what he truly offers. And so before we really get into all of this, we do need to ask the question, have we stumbled over Jesus? And, and it's possible to have been in church your whole life and still be stumbling over Jesus. Not really see what he offers you, that he offers you himself. Not a, not a self-righteousness that can save us, but only through him. That he's the only one that, as that previous verse in Romans 9.33 says, by which we will not be put to shame. That's the hope. That's the, the reality that he offers us. And sometimes in the complexity of the world, it is really easy to look at things and say, somehow Jesus is not enough. I must have something more. I, I know the gospel. I know that Jesus died, rose, resurrection, saved my sins. That, that's great. But there's complex issues out there that the gospel isn't enough for. I'm not talking about being simplistic, but I'm talking about seeing all that is happening in the world through Jesus and the one who is bringing all things through redemption to the way that God has sovereignly willed them to happen. So let's not stumble over Jesus, but let's see him as he is, this, this cornerstone, this rock, this foundation by which we see the rest of our lives. But what was the purpose of this stumbling? This stumbling actually has a purpose, a trajectory, if you will, in God's plan, and it's salvation. They stumbled in order that they might fall. By no means, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, this next kind of few verses, we'll summarize them together here just for a moment. What happens is Israel, God's physical people, they reject Jesus. Now, what happens after that? The Gentiles come in and they believe. And then what Paul is saying, after that what happens is the Israelites become jealous of the Gentiles. All those promises, all those rich 
the patriarchs, the promises, the covenants, all that Paul said in Romans 9, 4, the Gentiles have, and Israel becomes jealous of that. And someday, Paul looks down that there is this, this full inclusion of Israel, their fullness coming in. Now, let's, that's the summary. We'll, we'll work through that in a moment. First, this idea of, of Israel rejecting. If you look at Acts, we see a lot of this actually play out. Acts 13, verse 44. Paul is on a missionary journey, and as is his custom, he goes to the Sabbath, or to the, on the Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue. Acts 13, verse 44 says this, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans. We see of his, his story, and this is a, a pattern throughout the book of Acts. They go, they present the gospel first to the Jews. The Jews, may, some may accept, but, but many reject. And so what then they do is they go and bring it to the Gentiles. And this makes sense in some ways. If, if this hadn't happened, if the Jews had just sort of come in mass and, and, and accepted Christ, it would have been very easy for the watching world to just sort of say, well, there's this sort of Jewish revival thing going on, Judaism 2.0, and, and that, that's fine. That's sort of over there for them. But in God's sovereignty, he uses the, the Jews' rejection to, to bring in all of the Gentiles that he has called, to engraft them, as we'll see in a moment, into his people. That's the rejection, and we see this, this interlocking picture of God's sovereignty moving the gospel forward. But then we see Israel being jealous. Now, when does this happen? And this is where Paul gives us a couple verses saying all that this is happening, and, and we might have a lot of questions that the text doesn't really fully answer. We don't know exactly what this jealousy um, looks like. It's interesting, if you were noting when we just read that passage in Acts 13, the Jews were jealous, correct? But that wasn't a jealousy that ever moved them towards the gospel. The jealousy that we saw there in Acts 13 is a jealousy that says those people over there are, are creating a, a crowd. There's power. There's position there. I want that. I'm jealous of that. It wasn't jealousy of the gospel. It wasn't a jealousy that, that in repentance moves them to come and, and not look to their own self-righteousness. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans 11, a jealousy that is almost a longing that looks at what Christians have and say, hey, there, there's something there that I don't have. There's something there that is good and rich that, that I don't, don't have. That's what Paul is, is talking about in verse 11 and verse 14 where he talks about the Jews being jealous. We see one example of this in Acts chapter 6. Acts, Acts chapter 6, verse 7. This is as there are deacons chosen. So a little bit of context for what's happening in the church in this moment. What, what has happened is, we go back to Acts chapter 4, the early church is, is growing, it's expanding, and there's this wonderful part of Acts chapter 4 where, where everyone is sort of taking care of each other. No one has any physical needs. They're meeting those needs, and this is a fairly radical thing for communities to do at this time, that they would sell their possessions and, and care for the poor among them. 
And this leads to the point in Acts chapter 6 where there's so much of this work going on that they need to appoint some deacons to take care of this, to feed these people, to administer all of this, this good work. Now, what happens right after that, I think, points to what Paul is talking about in Romans 11. In Acts 6 verse 7, just after these deacons have been appointed, it says this, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's really significant, priest coming in to the faith. And in the context, it seems that part of the reason they've done that is because of what just happened. And what has just happened is that needs have been met. If you go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 4 and 5, it says that if God's people follow what God is asking him to do, and that's to care for one another, there will be no poor among them. And the priest saw what these Gentiles, what these other people were doing, what these Jews were doing, these people of God, this, these, these Christians were doing, and they said, there, there's something there. That's, I think, the jealousy that Paul is, is talking about here. When this will happen fully, we don't know. Some, in part, maybe in an ebb and flow, in and out, Jews will see what Christians are doing and, and will be moved towards Christ through, through a jealousy, a longing that says there's something something there. And this is in part what fuels Paul's ministry. Verses 13 and 14, he says that even his own ministry may be magnified that he may somehow save some of them. He's not looking in this moment for a great inclusion of of Israel coming in, but he is saying that his heart is for those people, the people, he says, of, of my flesh, that they would come and they would know. And then Paul finally, in this movement of God's redemption, this story, he gives us a picture of something that is coming. Our next passage will will really flesh this out and and give us some more idea of what Paul is talking about. But he talks about the full inclusion or the fullness in verse 12 of the Jews coming in. Verse 15, he sort of argues from the lesser to the greater, saying, for if their rejection, that is the Jews, mean the reconciliation of the world, that is the Gentiles, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? He points to Jews coming and and seeing the gospel, God bringing more of his people, more of his Israelites into his his people in a saving, saving way question for us this morning as we look at this, are, are people jealous of us? Remember in high school, I won an award for my high school. It was the award nobody wanted to win. I remember sitting in the very back of an assembly and hearing my name called and, and sort of this mortification, or just not mortification, but mortified sort of feeling. I won the sportsmanship award. And, and the rest of my basketball team is, is there. They're looking at me and kind of snickering. Nobody wants to win the sportsmanship award. Um, the perception is you're soft, you're, you know, whatever. We've got to give him one award, so here, you can have this. Nobody was jealous of me. Are people jealous of us? Now, this passage isn't sort of giving us a mandate, you must make people jealous of you, but it is pointing to a pattern that, that should and can happen with Christians. As we grow up in Christ, as we grow and and cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, our lives should look attractive to the world. People should look at us and say, there's something there. Now, it's not talking about sort of having this perfect facade of this whitewashed, I've got everything together, 
It involves vulnerability. It involves showing our, our, our need and, and pointing to the fact that we have a place where that need is met. Cultivating the fruit of the Spirit, growing up in Christ. Are people jealous of us? Something I think this passage calls us to consider. And in all of the, the confusion in our world, if we can present to people something that makes sense, something that has hope, something that has something that it, it ministers to the deep needs for forgiveness, for God's grace that we all have, whether we can articulate that or not, there will be a jealousy. And to make even a, a fine point from this, this text, are, are Jews jealous of us? Are God's ethnic people jealous of us? Or do they look at us and say, eh, they don't really have anything going on there? Again, this isn't creating a mandate, but it is pointing to a pattern that says your life should be in a, a way that, that people would say, there, there's something there that I don't, don't have. And it invites us to, to look along with the story and see what God is, is doing. Next question this text poses is, where do we belong in all of this? Verses 17 picks this up with this idea of, of grafting. Paul has just given in 16 a, a metaphor of dough offered as first fruits, being holy. And so if a root is holy, the branches are. He's, he's setting up what he's about to say, and he says, if things are brought into something, they are, are holy. It's sort of a, if one part is, or if the source is holy, then the other things will be holy too. And with that, he asks this question or presents this picture of grafting. Now, I don't know if anyone here has grafted something. If you have, I really do want to talk to you. I've got questions. Because this is one of those things you read about and you're like, how does this actually work? I mean, we know the basics, right? You take the sort of the, the stem of the one tree and you put it into the root or the branch of the other one. The scion goes into the stalk and then it grows. And you do this for the benefit of, of the branch usually, to, to cultivate something and, and have it have greater health and greater abundance. And so Paul will break a lot of the rules of how grafting works to make a theological point here. And he does it in verse 17, that some branches were broken off. So picture a tree here. There is one tree of God's people. That is the tree. It is God's people throughout time. Some branches have been broken off of this olive tree, and wild olive shoots have been grafted in. Now, this is unnatural. Normally, you graft the other way, but Paul is saying that there is something that God is doing here. These wild shoots have been brought in. And this is really a, a massive text in just these couple lines that helps us understand all of Scripture. That God has these, this one tree, these one people, and he's bringing things in. He's grafting in things that by nature don't belong. But in his sovereignty and his, his plan, he does that. We're not to be arrogant, verse 18. Because we do not support the root, but the root supports us. We are nourished by God's people. We are nourished by all of the things that Paul has pointed to that the, that the Jews had and the Gentiles didn't. To refresh your memory, I'll read Romans 9, verse 4. It says this, They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God forever, over all, forever praised. Amen. That's what we've been put into. It's, it's those people. It's God's people that we have been grafted into. And so what Paul is saying is this is his story, God's story of redemption of his people, and, and Gentiles now have a place in it. 
And we're probably used to hearing that. We've been around the church. We've talked about maybe covenant theology and how this all works. But this is, this is a massive thing for people to understand, that they have been brought in, that we, we, we didn't belong in God's people, so to speak. And now we do. We've been grafted in. should move us to wonder and, and amazement. Paul will get to the wonder and amazement. First, there's arrogance that comes up. But just for a moment to pause and say, this is where we belong. Now, sometimes people will call this a, a replacement theology, that somehow uh, Israel is just sort of done away with. It's not a good reading of this text. What it's saying is that God has always had one people. There's always been a true Israel. And it's to that that we are put in. There's always been people who have looked to God in faith, like Abraham did, and that is how he was credited righteousness. It's those people that we are grafted in. It's not a replacement. It is an inclusion of the Gentiles into this one tree. There aren't two ways to salvation. There's only ever been one way to salvation, and it's that that we are now included into. One of my favorite parts of, of ministry here at Trinity is our new members' classes. We have the chance to hear stories of people and how this has happened, how Romans 11 has actually happened. And part of that is maybe you remember when you did this or if you haven't done this yet, you meet with some of our elders and you share your story. You share your testimony of what God has done. And it's, it's a Romans 11 picture of how God has taken people that, that don't belong here and said, putting you in. I'm calling you out. By my grace, I am putting you. And that means that's where we belong and all the confusion and all the things that swirl around, this is where we belong. We have been grafted in securely into God, into his covenant people. That should move us to thanksgiving. That should move us in to, to worship. And, and I think it also helps us with our sort of disposition to the world. If you've read anything about sort of the the evangelical history of the church in the last 50 years or so, you'll notice that evangelicals are prone to having apocalyptic concerns. Um, every five to ten years, we find something to be very scared about. We do. It started all the way back to, to Billy Graham, and he did wonderful work, but there was also a fear. There's a fear of communism. There's a fear of this. There's a fear of that. And, and whether those fears are, are valid or not is not the point but the reality is that, that we as believers aren't called to sort of import other trees into this narrative. There's one tree of God's people. This is where we are. This is who we belong to. This is where our hope lies. And all the chaos and all the confusion and all the questions we have, this, this is who we are. We are grafted in. We belong here. Yes, there are concerns. Yes, there are things we need to, to work at and, and work towards. But this is where we can have hope and confidence in Christ, in what he has done, what God is doing. Finally, we need to get our lines right in this story. If you can paraphrase Walt Whitman, he, in that, one of his famous poems, says, the powerful play goes on, and we can contribute a verse. That's what Paul alludes to in this end. In all that God is doing, we have something that we are called to do. Two things from this passage. To stand firm through faith and to walk with humility. It really, in how Paul lays this out here, is, is that sort of simple, stand firm in the faith and walk with humility. See this here in verse 20, where Paul says this, that is true, 
the branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. He's pointing us to the fact that the only way we're actually part of this, this tree that we're grafted into is faith. He's saying, don't, don't walk away from the faith. Don't move away from it. Hold fast. Stand firm. As Ephesians says, with the armor of God put on, all of those wonderful truths, stand in that. Don't look elsewhere. Don't go elsewhere. Stand firm in faith in Christ. And then there's this, this language that, that may have sort of an internal conversation going on in your mind about, what does this mean? Am, is my salvation secure? Is it not? How do I, how do I live this out? What is, what is the warning here? What is the encouragement? Look at verse 22. It says, note then the kindness and severity of God. These two attributes, if you will, of God, his kindness and his severity. Now, God is not sort of oscillating between these two. God has all of his attributes all the time. He's everything. He doesn't change. He is these, these things that Scripture ascribes to him. And it asks us to note them, to remember them. Severity or sternness toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. He's reminding us that the way we relate to God depends on Jesus. If we have faith in Jesus, we are related to God through his kindness we are not, it is his severity. Romans 2.4 has said it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's reminding us that this is the way that we relate to God through grace, through his kindness towards us, not through our own uh, ability. Now, now, how do we make sense of all of this language of being cut off? Um, end of verse 22, otherwise you too will be cut off. Now, we need to be careful here not to sort of pit scripture against each other. If you remember back Romans 8, sort of that high Sierra point in the book of, of Romans, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Those he justified, he also glorified, this progression of what he does. And so we need to remember that, that security that he said, and also hear truly what God is, is saying here. Maybe a few other scriptures will help make this point. 1 John 2.19 says this, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. Paul is pointing to here is that there are some that may seem to be in the church, or in 1 John what it's being pointed to, that there may seem to be some who are part of God's people. They have the appearance of it. They have attended. They're sort of part of the, the visible church, those who show up. But that doesn't actually mean they have faith doesn't actually mean they've been joined to Christ securely, grafted into these people in union with Christ, which is, you cannot tear that apart. But at the, and so scripture, with that reality that there are sometimes people who kind of are around Christianity, but, but stumble over the stumbling stone, haven't really come to, to know faith, he, he reminds us that we, we should never wander from our salvation. We should never wander away. 2 Peter 1.10 says this, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, he's just listed a bunch of things that are, are godly good things, you will never fall. Or Hebrews 3 says it this way, hold firm to the end. There's a sense our, our salvation is, is secure. We are joined to Christ. We cannot lose our salvation. But there's a continued admonishment of Scripture to, to hold on to Christ. 
How do you know you haven't fallen away? Well, if you're still walking with Jesus, believing in him, then, then you haven't fallen away. That's, that's the, the logic that he's saying here. Don't sort of go just sort of say, my salvation's secure, I'm just going to go do whatever I want. That's the seed of, of, that germinates and moves us to a place of, of being cut off. And so there is a, a warning here, but really the call here, as one commentator, Leon Morris, has put it, the call is to a humble security that leans constantly on God's kindness. Leans constantly on God's kindness, because that kindness is, is irrevocable, even as God's call is irrevocable as we have been joined to him. As Romans eleven twenty nine will show us next, next week. So one question for us, how has God dealt with you? Has he dealt with you through kindness? Or is he dealing with you through severity? Now, even if you were in God's kindness, there will be times where God may, may teach us things that are difficult, but, but Paul is not talking about that. He's talking about, ultimately, do you know Jesus? Do you know his salvation? It's one thing this passage calls us to rem- remember, and as we do that, we are called then to walk in humility chocked full of examples of arrogance. And it's, it's really it's sad to see that because what we see here, that people become proud in their salvation, is what we experience. That because somehow we have been saved, because we knew we were sinners and now have not have been made righteous, we, we, we are pride, prideful people. Paul sees it right here. Branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. And we, we might not say it that way, but we have our own ways of saying it. Ways that sort of push others down and say, well, that's sort of, that's beyond God's reach. But here I am. I've kind of got things figured out. We should never be prideful in our, in our salvation. The arrogance here is, is the, the word used is of a gladiator who has just vanquished his foe. And too often I think the church comes close to that. Where we are victorious and there are the, the, the sinners out there it's not the posture Paul is, is talking about. Not one of victory over the world, but, but of humbly walking with God. Not arrogant, as verse 18 says, but with uh, continued walking in his kindness. Why? Because as the last verses show, 23 and 24, that all of this depends on God's power. It doesn't depend on us. Even those who seem to be not walking and being grafted in, verse 23, because of their unbelief, They will be grafted in again if they do not continue in their unbelief, for God has the power to graft them in again. Reminds us of what we saw right back in Romans chapter 1. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Salvation of everyone who believes. Even those who for a time may not seem to be walking, God is able to graft them in securely. Because we, contrary to nature, we're, were grafted in. And so we walk with humility, a humility that is, is thankful, that is worshipful, that says, God, you have given me so much. I am a sinner. I have experienced your grace. And the words of Micah 6, 8 are a fitting summary of what Paul is calling us to do. He has told you, old man, what you must do, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. In the midst of chaos, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of uncertainty, We walk in that way, standing firm in the faith, knowing that God's story will come to the end that he has gloriously and fully brought in and through Jesus. And we wait the day to see that fully. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you, Lord, that we are grafted in to God's people by God, by your work, through the faith that you have worked in us. Lord, would you allow us to see this passage as one that is hope-filled? Lord, even if there are details of timing and questions we may have, that we, we can trust your character, your kindness, your justice, that moves us towards repentance, that points us to hope in you. Would you do that now through us? We ask this in your name. Amen.